Speaks Volumes is a podcast hosted by mastering engineers, Matt Leffler-Schulman and Dan Coutant. We talk about supporting our fellow engineers, work-life balance, and maintaining good mental health in a stressful and competitive industry. Our guest today is Natalie Bibby, a mastering engineer based out of London, England. She has worked with Bimini, Cinderella Balthazar, Howard Lee, 163 Braces, Jimmy Eat World, and so many more. You talk about not working in a siloed environment, the future of spatial audio, talking on the phone with clients, having a sound of your own, mastering DAWs, the future of larger-than-life rock bands, the delocalization of scenes since the advent of the internet, and the lasting effect of Nirvana and the music of the 90s. This episode's music is brought to you by Muttering, also from London, England. For more information on Muttering, point your web electrons to mutteringband.com. Thank you so much, Natalie, for being on the show with Dan and I. Yeah, thank you for having me. So first, we'd like to start with a little bit of a thumbnail about who you are, uh, where you got started, and how that journey led to where you are today. So I work at Metropolis Studios uh, in London, and I've been working there now for, I think it's about 10 years. Um, so yeah, I'm a mastering engineer, but I kind of took the traditional route into it um, in that I started as a runner there in the studios department. Um, and I was actually pursuing a career to become a recording engineer with the um, hopes of becoming like a mix engineer. But pretty soon into kind of doing that, I don't really know why, but I kind of realized it wasn't my kind of thing. Um, and I don't, there's no real reason why I just kind of, I'm one of those people where I follow my intuition a lot and, um, for no particular reason, it just didn't feel like, um, the right thing for me. And kind of at the same time, I also saw the mastering rooms at Metropolis. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever seen a mastering room and I was kind of like, wow, um, you know, what's that? And during that time running, um, I also kind of met uh, Tony Cousins and he's a mastering engineer that actually set up Metropolis Mastering back in 93. And we kind of developed a rapport quite quickly. Um, and I think he invited me to come and um, sit in on a mastering session. And yeah, I was kind of blown away pretty much. I was like, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Um, but there wasn't really a pathway into mastering at Metropolis at that time, um, just because there wasn't a need, you know, for anyone in the department or anything, all the kind of positions and so on were filled. So I stopped um, interning in the studios department and joined um, Metropolis as a receptionist, which is kind of like um, running 2.0 or interning 2.0. It's like a great place for you to to be um, and a great role for you to do if you're not quite sure which avenue you want to go within the music industry, but you kind of want to keep your foot in the door and maybe see which what kind of connections you might make. Um, and during that time on reception, um, I also started to uh, intern at an actual mastering studio, a really small one. 
um, elsewhere in London because I was thinking to myself, if I just get a bit of experience somewhere else, maybe when there is a vacancy at Metropolis, you know, I'll be a good candidate for that. Um, so I did that that kind of for about three months, um, the interning elsewhere whilst still working on reception. Uh, and then, yeah, we had a change in the upper management at Metropolis and we got a new CEO. And uh, it was actually him, he kind of came in one weekend to um, introduce himself. <clears throat> and um, yeah, he just asked me right then, what, what did I really want to do? Um, and I told him I wanted to be a mastering engineer. I told him I was uh, interning somewhere else. And yeah, he gave me, gave me a chance and I was like, no, you should do it here. And yeah, it's kind of where I started really. I became an intern in the mastering department worked my way up to like uh, assistant mastering engineer and then QC engineer, um, then QC engineer and mastering engineer, and then finally mastering engineer. So. And you're also cutting vinyl too, right? Oh yeah. Um, I started kind of doing that. I guess I started doing that almost just after I finished my interning role, you know, in the mastering department, they kind of train you or, uh, doing that from the beginning because it's something that takes quite a long, long time to do, you know, to learn. And it's also one of those things where it's really something, the skill comes from experience, a lot of experience, um, cutting different things, cutting difficult things, um, and learning certainly what can go wrong with the lathe and how to do that and you know, how to deal with that because if something does go wrong, it can be kind of like catastrophic, so <laughs> it can go downhill quickly. Sure. So one thing that Dan and I have talked about, and you know, because we both have our own studios and we work relatively isolated, but you have the the insight of working in a studio where you know there's a recording studio, there's mastering suites, there's different rooms, different engineers, and you're all sort of working under one roof. Are you able to? communicate with each other or do you sort of work in isolated silos? Uh, oh yeah, definitely. I, I'd say um, Metropolis, yeah, I was thinking about this too, because I was thinking the sort of difficulties and challenges that a mastering engineer might have could be completely different if you're, for example, an independent one with your own studio by yourself versus um, kind of in a big studio complex like myself. And um, yeah, it's very um, like supportive and collaborative, the environment, um, not just kind of in my department, but elsewhere too. So I have a lot of um, friends in studios, uh, the assistants and the engineers. And it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like my safe haven, really. It's like this sort of bubble, like its own world. Um, and yeah, obviously I mostly work by myself all day um, in my room, um, unless I'm attended, obviously. But I, you know, I always kind of pop out and uh, you know chat to the other engineers and stuff. Um, and it's quite cool because if any one of us ever gets anything that's kind of quite unusual or um, different, you know, it could be in a in a mix. Uh, or something in an arrangement or even like uh, an instrument we don't hear often we'll often be like call each other up and be like oh you should come and listen to this and um that's really nice too so kind of i don't know 
it's nice to kind of be able to have conversations with other mastering engineers because they're on the same wavelength completely as you. And it's nice to kind of talk about the little details in music with people that completely appreciate them. I think there's kind of like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like they're like my comrades or something. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. There, there's, there's something I found with mastering engineers that I feel in general, they're just more open to communicating about how they, you know, they work and, you know, their trade secrets and whatnot. I feel when, when I was recording bands and producing, I felt like the other engineers I would work with were much more sort of, um, you know, they kind of held on to those secrets themselves. And um, I, I still haven't figured out why that is, but it's just something I've noticed and, and I appreciate, obviously. Yeah, I think that was, do you know what, that's probably something I was expecting to experience, to be honest, um, as an intern, and I just didn't experience it. Um, I kind of always felt that the engineers, they really wanted me to succeed. Um, and I think as an intern, I really lacked self-esteem in general as a person, and like lot, and I lacked quite a lot of self-belief just generally. And I kind of feel like the guys believed in me before I believed in myself. And um, yeah, I, I, they were kind of always sharing their, their, what we might call their, their secrets and their, um, their kind of top tips from the beginning. And um, yeah, that's nice. That's nice. That's been nice. Yeah. That's, that's awesome to have that support. But yeah, I'd say, um, yeah, I'd say it's a, it's a very cool place to work. Um, it's nice that we we have a bar area as well. So I'll often kind of pop out my room and get lunch and get some daylight. And then, you know, when I come back in, there's always different people at the bar to talk to. There's, you know, my friends in the studios, there's third party people, you know, like producers, uh, songwriters. So it's kind of nice to to keep connection, even though obviously our, our job is a little bit hermity, you know? Totally. So, so going back to what Dan and I were talking about before we started the the podcast, um, yeah. One of my questions for you was, you know, when you have a finicky client who, you know, you're going, you know, around in circles and you're not able to sort of come to a conclusion with um, a, a master. How do you how do you rein a client in like that? Um. I think it's really good to, um, if you can't have them kind of there with you in person, um, then it's good to, I think, talk to them on the phone, you know, rather than emailing and texting. Um, cause sometimes it's just, a, it's just, they, you need to kind of speak their language. Um, and sometimes they're saying words like I want it warmer or I want it more energetic, but you might, you know, have a different idea of what that means and they might. So it's just kind of, um, removing the barriers, I think, particularly of, you know, distance and, uh, you know, text communication, I think is a big thing. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I often <clears throat> love to jump on the phone and I think it, it scares some of my clients who are younger than me. Um, Dan and I are both Gen Xers and I think, you know, we we're used to, you know, jumping on the phone and, you know, growing up without the cell phone. So it's much more comfortable for us, but I feel like we're able to, you know, get from point A to point B that much faster jumping on the phone. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, I always think, um, I wish that every session could be attended. Um, cause I think if it was, wouldn't ever really have those problems. And there's also just that kind of connection and kind of 
collaboration which simply comes from being there in person with the person with, with the person you know and seeing how they respond to the changes and um, tweaks you make and I feel like with attended sessions um, you know there's no barriers at all between how you know the client and yourself and um, yeah you always arrive at something where pretty much there's no you just there aren't any revisions there's no need for them or I've never found to that I've needed to do a revision after an attended session yeah it's like um almost instant buy-in do you do you do a lot of attended sessions uh yeah I do actually um I think uh yeah I think people quite like to come into metropolis in general if they can and um yeah I found yeah quite a lot of my clients like to kind of come in and uh hear their music on the you know the full range speakers the the towers that go up to the ceiling I think um, that's an experience that people seem to really love especially obviously you can really hear the bass how it is in your mix um, in a room like that so yeah it's fun I I do prefer attended sessions uh, definitely yeah so I was uh, curious to ask Natalie I think I've seen uh, Natalie in a starring role uh, for an ad. A metropolis ad on social media where she talks about you know submitting mixes for mastering and tips and you know list five or six things that are good practices for for mixes for mastering and i'm curious to know in your experience natalie do you find that most clients adhere to to those suggestions or are you getting mixes that are just all over the map as far as master processing level etc you know um how's that experience been for you um, I think it's got a lot better um, in kind of the, the last year or so. Um, but yeah, I definitely was getting a lot of stuff that was all over the place. Um, and um, I never touch anything when it's like that because I feel like it's unfair. So I always kind of call the person up um, and just kind of tell them and try to help them as much as possible. Um, and sometimes there's a bit of back and forth as well. They just kind of like, show me, show me your door and then try to help them get the audio out the project in a kind of suitable uh way but yeah it's got better now i would say um a couple times obviously people sometimes forget to take their limiters off which is i usually catch those though and uh kind of reject those and ask them to remove them but actually i say that and it's really great to know that people are actually um, listening to their final mix with a limiter on because obviously you might have a you might love your mix it's great and then you just put a limiter on and it ever so slightly changes things but I actually think that's a really great way for people to kind of quality control their own final mix like just put a limiter on and give it a couple of db of gain and just see how has that actually changed the energy uh, and the frequency balance, do you still like your mix, you know? Um, yeah. Right, right. And have you encountered clients who push back a little bit about, you know, maybe keeping their limiter on or have you had to handle, you know, mixes that are just not a whole lot of room left to work, but you just do your best with it? And how do you approach th those situations? Um, I would say, you know what, most mixes come in quite hot these days and that's absolutely fine as long as it's not uh, an actual limiter smashing it to pieces. You know, I think people mix loud and, um, you know, mix, bu mix bus stuff is fine, you know, EQ, compression, if that's gluing your song together and giving you the sound you like, great, you know, submit that to me. It's just, 
sometimes people are then putting a limiter on afterwards but i always think it's a mistake i think they've just forgotten to take it off they've they've been listening to it you know sending it out to bandmates like here's a you know here's a loud version of the mix for you to listen to um yeah yeah we've been talking a lot lately with guests on the podcast about you know how good digital tools have gotten um you know particularly plugins in the last couple of years and i find myself um being a pretty hardcore you know analog fan i find myself more and more just reaching for you know plugins that seem to be fitting you know those roles for me lately um not in place of the analog but just you know sort of getting close enough and and it makes the yeah. job a little bit easier and more efficient what is your workflow like like what do you prefer do you have a preference analog versus digital or are you just you know hybrid whatever works how do you feel about that i'd say on the whole i'm mostly hybrid um but the way i work is i it's never really the same and it's never a way of working because i like working that way um i just kind of listen to the song and I know pretty quickly um, what what way might be best for that song. Like right. um, it's it's rare that I do this, but some so, some songs that are kind of um, you know with a lot of kick and bass, you know, like EDM, they're so hot when they come in um, that it just stay in the box. Because if I try to put it through my desk, actually, I'm going to lose something of the song. You know, it will mush up the bass. Even if I right. would just put the song flat through the desk for example it would still mush up the bass um so in those scenarios uh, i might stay in the box um but mostly it's hybrids uh i i love using my desk and the eqs and stuff that i've got in that room that all kind of chosen for a certain reason and for um slightly different contexts but what i do find with um going through the desk and stuff is that it's like with the EQs, even if you're on the narrowest cue, um, they're still pretty wide brushstrokes, you know, compared to if you if you stay digital and do the same EQ, you can go a little, it's a lot more clinical. So that's right. something that I'm always aware of too. Um, and even if I run kind of music through an EQ, but actually pretend I was going to leave it flat, the EQ itself is adding tone. It's adding something to the music. And that's always something I'm aware of too. I don't want to be changing the tone of someone's music if that's the wrong choice, if that's going to take away. Right. So yeah, my, choice are, my choices are always kind of a song per song um, basis, I would say, yeah. Yeah, that gets me thinking about a mastering engineer having a sound or not you know, sometimes people talk about, you know, I go to this person for this kind of sound and I go to that person for this kind of sound. Are you more of a, um, I mean, it sounds like you are from what you just said, but are you more like trying to stay out of the way of the music as far as, you know, having an aesthetic or are you cultivating kind of a sound, kind of a signature that you want to be known for? Or how do you approach that aspect of it? um it's still it's, it's strange i guess it's kind of both because i definitely approach it that way like what the song needs um because i would hate to think about myself changing someone's music or taking away from it unnecessarily just to um be like yeah what because i want to use this eq um right but at the same time there is a couple of pieces of gear 
in my room that I have chosen and that I like to use as often as, you know, works for the song together because I know that they have a certain sound together, um, which I do think, yeah, a lot of my clients that attend um, kind of come for as well. Right. Yeah. No, I definitely feel the same way. And sometimes I have to stop myself from using something that I really want to use just because I know that a particular client, knowing their taste, they're not going to like <laughs> what that piece of gear adds to uh, to the signal path. And um, yeah. for me, I sort of like, you know, darker sounding um, things, um, you know, not murky, but I, I like round, warm, you know, uh, really smooth sounding stuff. And I do have clients that, you know, they prefer a little bit, you know, the, what they call shimmer. I call it edge. <laughs> I call yeah, it icicles. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Um, you know, I'm kind of losing the shimmer on that one. And then I'll know it's because, you know, maybe because I have my manly compressor in the chain or something. And it's a struggle sometimes to, to restrain yourself <laughs> from using something you want to use. I used to have a, I used to have a manly um, compressor. I missed that actually. Um, I pretty much always used it uh, never to compress. But I just kind of have it doing nothing, but and it seemed to take away, um, yeah, the harshness sometimes of of the music. Uh, I kind of miss having that. I might have to get myself one again. It's never too late. <laughs> it's never too late. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, I do the same thing with my very Mew. Um, you know, every once in a while, the the needle will sort of tickle around a little bit, but for the most part, the needles aren't moving ever. Yeah, it just has a. It's just a. It's a tone thing. Um, that's, yeah. I always think that people sometimes ask me if you could have more, you know, hardware EQs or compressors, which would it be? And it's always compressors because, well, firstly, most music is the mixes that I get today are quite hot and compressed anyway. But what really is the magic about different compressors is the tones that they have when they're not compressing, they're just in the chain like that manly is just great for taking some of the sort of harshness um out of certain tracks um and yeah it's just having options for tones i think i wish i had a like a a rack of i don't know 20 compressors would be great <laughs> do you feel like there's still something to be desired in the digital domain when it comes to something like you're talking about right now as far as like the manly box you know taking that edge away do you still find that hard to do in the digital domain or are there tools available now that kind of where you can get that effect oh yeah i think i definitely think you can do that in the digital um uh kind of way of working but i just i just quite like doing it uh with the gear i think just because i i learned a lot of those things from from tony um and yeah i've just kind of not moved away from that way of working because yeah i don't know i just i just like it same here yeah i always get lost in the list of plugins and for me that's the biggest turn off <laughs> oh yeah yeah I, I, do, I guess i do have a lot of plugins but i don't really use that many i would say yeah I, um, I end up using yeah. like five or 10 sort of exclusively and that's kind of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you find that your computer is like struggling or sometimes <laughs> I do, but if I put more than a few on, it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. The plugin thing is like when you're in that demo period, you know, you're really chugging the Kool-Aid hard. Right. And you, and you go for it. 
yeah. <laughs> and you buy yeah. the plugin and then yeah you know, like in two years you find that you know you haven't opened like 25 plugins that you paid <laughs> for that happened to me with uh universal audio once i got the uad you know i was trying because you could try all of them I was like, whoa, that is great. I'm going to buy that one. <laughs> I'm going to buy that one. And yeah, I have like probably, you know, 15 or 20 UAD plugins. I think I only use two of them like regularly, but you know, they're there. Yeah, so. same. <laughs> I do love yeah, that Oxford yeah. limiter. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. That has, um, the, yeah, there's a few little tricks you can do with that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, I like the inflator it. and the, uh, the inflator is great. The culture vulture emulation; those are the two. I reach for those fairly often. Um, but oh, I've not used those. The inflator is is a really, you know, it's it's one of those when it works, it it works better than anything. But it it doesn't work all the time. <laughs> I guess there's lots of those, but but the inflator does something that nothing else really does. Yeah, there's definitely uh, something with some magic fairy dust in it that I, I just I have no idea what it does. But oftentimes you put it on, you kind of mess with some knobs and it sounds better. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to try that. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, DAWs do you guys use? I use WaveLab. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. I'm 100% a Pro Tools person still. So some call me a caveman, but <laughs> I, I still enjoy Pro Tools and... I, I learned on it and I just know my way around it so well that I, I just stuck to it all this, all these years. Yeah. I like, no, I like Pro Tools. I would probably use that um, if there was a way, you know, where you could input the metadata um, right, so right. that there is a way to kind of run out the final parts and stuff. Um, right. Because otherwise you'd have to, if you did use that or I'd have to like, take everything out, export it out, and then put it in another DAW just to do those um, those parts and stuff. So exactly. yeah, so I use yeah. Sequoia for that reason, yeah. Yeah, Sequoia is great. I mean, I, I, think, things. I think once upon a time, it was PC only. Is that still the case, or? I think that was WaveLab. I think so, yeah. No, I, th I think Sequoia is um, oh. PC only. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. That was the deal breaker for me, but but it is a fantastic workstation for mastering. Yeah, it, I mean, it's quite similar to Pro Tools um, in terms of the editing and the automation um, that you can do. Uh, before that, I was using Sadie 6, which is just, yeah, it's behind the times. I think it was great, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but yeah. you can't even, you can't even really do automation in it. It's like, I didn't want to battle the DAW to kind of do my mastering. So I just kind <laughs> of, yeah. Yeah, WaveLab just added automation. I don't know, it was in version 10, the last version, um, which was huge. Yeah, the only downside to Pro Tools for me, because I do exactly what you said with, you know, encoding, I, I do have to use, you know, a third party program to do that part, the metadata part. But, um, but the editing is just so comfortable for me and um the only complaint i have is that you can't do mixed sample rates in the same session which is rarely an issue it's that it doesn't really happen that much and it's not that big of a deal to just kind of you know shut down and make a new session at a different sample rate but um you know can be a pain but yeah obviously we're using pro tools for dolby atmos um but, right so it's kind of yeah it's kind of strange using I'm trying to think how many doors I've got in my life now. I've got, hmm. I've got Sequoia, um, and I've got 
Pro Tools for the Dolby Atmos. And then at home, I use Logic to make my own stuff. I love um, Logic. Yeah, I love Logic. I, I just feel like it's very user-friendly and like in, inviting, uh, you know, if you want to make something. Yeah, uh, and, and it's just like it, there's so many cool things sort of built in, like the stock plugins are really good and the, the sounds, the, the soft synths are really good. Um, and it's it's 200 bucks. It's like, it's a no-brainer for me. Yeah, no, I love Logic. I, I can't see myself ever moving away from that uh, for, for making music, certainly. I always found Pro Tools a bit more, like it's not very, it's not really designed for somebody sort of making music, you know, with synths and stuff. It's more like, I feel like it's more for band stuff and editing, um, yeah, rather than right. writing as you go sort of thing. So are you doing much at Metropolis with Atmos? I've only just started to get into it. Um, yeah, so I will hopefully be doing some soon. Um, I've just kind of started uh, using that room and kind of just learning the, the format. Um, but it's been really interesting. Um, I brought some of my own music, uh, which is like, it's called Dungeon Synth, and it's a genre which is like lo-fi fantasy. Cool, cool. And I brought the stems um, from that in, and I kind of set it up in a project and uh, tried to create a mix. And I kind of um, blew myself away, because it was kind <laughs> of like, this type of music is definitely designed um, for this uh, format. In fact, actually, it's almost like it's better than stereo. And um, it just sounded amazing with like all the choirs um, kind of like around me, almost in a circle. And then the automation um, sort of in a 3D space of like, you know, violins and, um, you know, all kinds of like haunting sort of decorations within the mix. It just sounded so good. I was, and it's kind of made me think. I'm writing another EP now and I'm going to write it all with the kind of 3D format as the final um, mix, you know, and, you know, I'll, I'll add more elements in that will work better in that um, kind of situation. And then the stereo will just be kind of an afterthought, which is really funny to kind of think about. Um, yeah. Music in that way. Yeah. So it, it seems like everyone's hot and cold with it and, uh, I'm just curious as to what your take is in how it's going to go from, you know, where it is now, where it's, it's I think it's a little un misunderstood to where it's going to become sort of, you know, ubiquitous at the dinner table where everybody knows what mm -hmm. it is and, and how to receive it. How long do you think that's going to take? And, you know, what, what are the steps that, you know, the industry has to make to get there? I think um that it has the potential almost to be like you know how we think about mono now when stereo came along right i do think it has a potential to kind of um perhaps even eclipse stereo in some genres um but perhaps not all and i think that what uh, is holding it back is simply um the consumer needing to catch on a bit more to it and i think once they do then i think it will really kind of take off and we might see pretty much everything, you know, that's big coming out in both stereo and Atmos. And just from my, you know, experience with my own stuff, it might also change the way that people 
start writing music actually and recording it they might start thinking about um this you know this 3d space and how much more they can do um to create an immersive song um but i wonder what it is that is holding the consumer back um perhaps it just needs more time perhaps something like that um but yeah it does seem to be really taking off and i think it will i think five years from now it'll be um yeah, it'll be huge, I think. I, and I know that you can listen to Atmos mixes with headphones. And I know, it, I, I assume it's some sort of simulated, you know, array of sound, but is has that translated yet to two speaker audio? Or in order to listen back to an Atmos mix, you have to have like the full array of speakers? Uh, so when you uh, finish doing the Dolby Atmos Mix and Master, you run out um, a few versions. One is, for example, if you have this kind of speaker set up or, you know, something close to that. And then another one is binaural, which is for headphones. And it will be slightly different, obviously. Um, but yeah, so there are, there are different versions. So it is kind of accessible to people, um, you know, who mostly consume music on their headphones or earbuds but i suppose that's probably where it will take off when more people are choosing to seek out that listening experience on their headphones and when that becomes more um of a popular thing the whole industry might get bigger i think yeah i've i've listened on those apple um the over the ear headphones and it sounds pretty cool <laughs> like I, I have to admit, you know, I'm not usually one to jump on new technologies right away, but definitely, you know, I went to the Apple store once and I was listening through them and it, 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 it's, it's a pretty cool format. Um, you know, I'm always just kind of cynical about any sort of change, you know, I guess until it, until it takes on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, different genres kind of benefit, benefit more from it. For example, I don't know if you just have a band with bass drums two guitars i mean of course you can make the if you bring those stems to dolby atmos you will make it seem wider and more <clears throat> sorry more spacious and like around you but i feel that you don't get to experience i don't know i just don't know if it 100 percent needs that versus something that's orchestral and has all these different elements um that's where you really see the i think the value and the benefit of it yeah, hearing a mix of an orchestra in Atmos sounds absolutely, you know, almost bewildering. I, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, but the band stuff does still sound cool. Um, it's interesting. It's It does kind of feel more like you're at a live show in, in a way, which is good, because then that suggests by itself it's a more immersive experience, which is kind of the, That's true. Um, I think, the basis of the whole um technology really yeah yeah it's interesting what you said and i've heard some mix engineers uh say the same thing which is a real way for it to catch on so to speak would be for artists to kind of write with the format in mind from the beginning from the genesis of a project like you said um but yeah i think that people not being able to hear it uh in their homes is a big obstacle and also 
the financial investment involved with people don't want to take the leap of investing in a speaker system that's going to reproduce the format. So those are two big challenges in, in my mind, uh, as far as, you know, obstacles uh, for Atmos to become more mainstream. Definitely. And I think it, I think what it means is that somehow um, the binaural experience or the headphone experience has to be um, or amazing, has to be valuable. Otherwise, um, yeah, you're right. It's not, it's not as accessible to um, people otherwise. What do you think, Matt? You think uh, punk bands will start writing records with Atmos in mind? No, I don't think that's ever going to happen. <laughs> but I do feel like, you know, uh, you know, I always wonder, like, what would Philip Glass or, you know, a lot of the, the sort of people who are doing, you know, like Laurie Anderson, people who were sort of ahead of the curve and sort of in, in terms of technology, what they would do with a technology like this, even a Lou Reed, Todd Rundgren, Todd Rundgren. I mean, all these, you know, um, yeah. Brian, Brian Wilson, like what they would have done with a technology like this. Oh, yeah. I feel like it would have been, you know, it's not to say there aren't, you know, modern people. Um, St. Vincent, I feel like she could do something really, really cool with a record doing doing something in spatial audio. Is there an Atmos mix of Sgt. Pepper? <laughs> I don't know if there's a released one. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But I'm the jerk who likes the mono mix the best. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's the original kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 I, but I, I never knew that growing up because we only had the American stereo ones. Um, and then when they finally came out, at least in America, with the mono ones, I was just like totally blown away. I think I'd still, I'd love to hear, for example, Nirvana in Dolby Atmos. That's my favorite band. Um, I'd be interested to see how that would work, how how Nevermind would sound. But I would definitely, um, you know, kind of pay to listen to that because, yeah, it's just some. Even if it's if, even if it's not better than stereo, it's something slightly different and. Um, you might still kind of pick up on different aspects within the music because of that, that you might not really have focused on before when you were listening to stereo. Totally. So I, I think, think hearing the harmonies and just all the nuance in that record would be amazing. Yeah, definitely. I think it's the nuances that, that te this technology can bring out, um, which hopefully will make it <clears throat> like a valuable yeah, thing that people get into more. That's a really interesting thought because I think that's that's a good point. Like people who really love a record already, not so much someone experiencing a record for the first time, but for your favorite records, you want to hear them in a different environment or in a different situation, right? So that's why I guess, you know, the legacy stuff um, being re-released in Dolby Atmos is such a thing with Atmos because that's what people want to hear. They want to hear like, oh, what what does Fleetwood Mac rumor sound like <laughs> in Atmos, right? Because it's such a classic album that we know so well. I, I can think of five records right now that I'd love to hear in Atmos, but I'm not sure if there are versions <laughs> in Atmos to be had. Um, but anyway, when you talk about Nirvana, it, it's interesting too, because I don't know if you've heard the... Um, did you hear the 2023 uh, 30th anniversary in utero release? Yeah. 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 I, I thought that sounded fantastic. And I actually had a conversation with Bob Weston, who did the remastering, and we kind of nerded out a little bit about it. And I was really kind of thankful that he was generous with his time and 
information and and telling me about that but yeah it's just um nirvana is is great i guess is my point <laughs> yeah uh, i've been like the biggest nirvana fan for since you know since i can remember that's uh, why i got into music um but yeah no i think that remastering is amazing um and yeah it's funny even you know the slight slight difference um you know in this remastered version is valuable and makes me want to you know listen to the album and enjoy the album all over again because you still hear something slightly different um you know whether even if it's just a frequency range rather than uh an element you know within the harmonies or something and that's yeah yeah it's special so i guess our next thing we need to do is we need to talk to albini about getting on board with atmos <laughs> oh yeah good luck yeah <laughs> i don't think i don't think he's gonna yeah i don't no. think he's gonna want to do that i'd really like to hear actually just thinking about nirvana that um hidden track on nevermind endless name oh, endless name oh yeah i think that would actually work really well in atmos um that's, yeah that's one of my favorite songs by them actually yeah i can just yeah. imagine it uh it would kind of create that strange tense environment it would kind of heighten that um if it was kind of all spread around you yeah um yeah, yeah that would be really interesting to hear sonic youth would be very cool too i mean they, 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 yes. the, the, the there's a, um a record of theirs called silver sessions yeah um have you heard that record yeah yeah um yeah it's one of my favorite records of theirs it's just like these feedback loops and i think that'd be really <laughs> yeah. really interesting to hear sort of in that immerse immersive environment yeah and of course um like my bloody valentine even yeah. though that's just guitars and bass and drums you could do so much um to create that sort of wall of noise that he's gone for but around you you know it would be amazing i wonder how much money and how long that would take to be released <laughs> yeah yeah that's true yeah <laughs> how many guitar tracks i know can we, can we oh, get boy. in that the atmos mix yeah um, <laughs> Yeah, no, Nirvana is um, has been a, a recent obsession of mine, and it was all introduced through that 30th anniversary, um, you know, reissue of In Utero. And it leads me to a question, um, which is, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I kind of feel like, you know, that kind of iconic, larger than life rock band thing like i don't know if that's still a thing like is that still around with like newer bands you know what i mean um and when i say newer i guess i'm talking about like the last 20 years or so um but since nirvana or since i don't know if anyone is on that same level in the last 25 years but and you're talking like rock bands like guitar rock, bass, drums, i'm talking vocals. about rock bands because i know pop music and hip-hop have kind of oversaturated the the you know pop music commercial music market in the yeah. last you know however many years but like i'm talking about rock bands that are as important as nirvana was to the people that listen to nirvana i mean is that still a thing yeah i i think it's almost like um that thing of a of a rock star being that big and that iconic and that kind of voice of a generation it definitely almost died with kurt cobain and then yeah. obviously then we had pop music and um rap music but it's also it kind of died at the same time as we also started to see the death of sort of subcultures like uh, you know when right. i was at school we used to kind of have terms for like um 
different people like I was like a grunger and I used to hang out with like moshers and stuff um and and now I talk to like people and there's like no there's none of that at school anymore and some of those kind of subcultures came from I think uh sort of a a wider variety of music being in the charts particularly subgenres of rock music which I just don't think is there in the charts anymore it is kind of um pop and rap but right yeah right. no I, I would love to I would love to see a big I would love to see a band as big as Nirvana as as culturally important as Nirvana um, I, yeah I just I don't love think there to see is that. one yeah do you think it's pro I mean it's probably the internet's fault <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe or just a change of taste or um, yeah yeah I mean, it, we're so we're so oversaturated with like music, new music, and this band and that band, and ads and social media, and yeah, I, I don't know. I think that has kind of destroyed the. Well, I heard I heard somebody say this actually. Um, a singer of a band that I used to really like back in the '90s, they were called Into Another, and uh, the singer Richie Birkenhead was doing an interview, and he talked about how the internet has eliminated like geographical scenes mm. from music and and that was really important in the 90s right like you know uh, the, the dc scene the chicago yeah. scene seattle the bristol you know, scene Se yeah seattle, seattle was the thing where you know like manchester the, mu the music business was was kind of existed uh in the heart of seattle right um yeah. in, in the early 90s so so that is another thing that's really important that's changed that doesn't exist anymore you know yeah it's kind of yeah i guess it's just kind of everywhere and nowhere because of the internet and right. stuff like that and online stuff um yeah yeah it's a shame like nirvana made me want to pick up a guitar and kind of i think that started me off on this pathway to becoming a mastering engineer and i th i'm sure they bands like that um kind of inspired so many other people and resulted in so many other people kind of taking a pathway in music or um art so it's a shame it was it yeah. was funny because um a few years ago um i actually met dave Grohl and i i didn't know that i was going to um, oh, wow. i literally just came to work one day and um i happened to be wearing a mudhoney t-shirt and i had no <laughs> knowledge that he was going to be um you know at metropolis at all and um i saw him and he saw me and spoke to me and was like oh i love your shirt <laughs> and um i was so like like shocked and like uh like amazed i just couldn't say anything back to him it was really funny that's awesome i was just like i was like it's dave Grohl. it's like yeah it's crazy yeah i think every well many of the kind of bands punk bands that got you know like major label contracts in the 90s have nirvana to thank for that <laughs> oh yeah uh, definitely especially as well that post grunge stuff as well um, right right yeah i think labels were trying to find the next nirvana um all the time yeah yeah was weezer the next nirvana and they didn't oh, pan out uh, maybe i do like me some early weezer pinkerton's a good album oh it's such um, a great record yeah yeah great album it's really really catchy and those guitar tones are, are great because they're not kind of mid-scooped right right they're yeah like i feel proper grunge I feel um, like the the music industry was hoping that they could make Weezer into the next Nirvana because it was it was very musically it was it was shared similarities but the sentiment was totally different right 
Yeah. It was like the complete opposite sentiment. And after what happened to Kurt Cobain, you know, I, I guess they thought that was the answer. Like, let's put out this lighthearted band, like as far as their content, but musically still kind of sounds like Nirvana. Um, but uh, yeah, it didn't quite pan out, I guess. Mm, yeah. yeah, I think a lot of Nirvana's success, obviously, is the amazing songwriting. But I think yeah. why they're iconic, like iconic and why maybe Weezer sat, feel differently is is simply to do with like Kurt Cobain and um, almost like the like who he was and like kind of the energy he kind of put into the songwriting because I think that kind of stuff does make uh, almost a feeling within the music yeah. uh, which can also draw people which kind of feel the same way um, and I think a lot of Nirvana's music was just feeling uh, was just very raw and people that felt the same way connected on mass but if you have a bit more light-hearted music even if it sounds you know completely the same in terms of how it's written perhaps people aren't pulled towards it you know and find right. that band or that um lead person as uh, their voice so they you know they they listen to it but they kind of it doesn't stay with them as um something that's changed their life and that they feel connected with yeah the amazing thing about Nirvana's music is that it connected with so many millions of people, but it still felt to those people that it connected with that it was just theirs, right? Like yeah. it was this this mass thing, but they every fan of the band that really cared about the band like felt like Kurt Cobain was speaking directly to them and they had this intimate connection with the music, but it was just a massively successful, you know, thing. So that's amazing. Yeah, and I love also that the songs are really quite easy to play on guitar. So you can be <laughs> 12, 12 years old and like you're playing Nirvana. There's something about um, how obviously it wasn't you know, intended to be all simple stuff, but just the accessibility of it um, to people that connect with it, if you're like 12 or 13 years old, sort of makes it special too um, as well. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. that was the genius of a songwriting yeah i mean it's very kind of beetle like the beatles too um the ramones yeah yeah it's quite catchy it's quite pop in some ways some oh, of the yeah. songs oh uh, yeah i mean all the bands that kurt listened to were there were a lot of pop bands like the vaselines and i'm totally drawing a blank on other ones i guess the pixies pixies yeah yeah yeah, yeah i found the wipers as well um, yeah yeah to be they're obviously very punk but it's, it's catchy like yeah their songs are catchy were they also from seattle uh, no, I don't think they were. They no, were okay. uh, like like an early influence of Kurt Cobain's. Okay. Um, actually, I'm not sure where they're from. I need to look that up. It's funny to trace that history. I mean, this all has nothing to do with mastering, obviously. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's the reason why we're all mastering engineers, right? Because it's we're nerds about this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone made a great record, and yeah, we wanted to. I don't know. Do right. something musically because of it, which is which is great. Um, I think that's what music and art should be about ultimately, or that that's what right. for me, successful art and music is doesn't have to be big, doesn't have to be slick sounding. It just has to have a, if it has a positive effect on someone's life and makes them want to take some action, um, you know, that's also positive, then that's great. That's kind of what it's all about, you know? Totally. So Natalie, did you get to see Nirvana? 
Oh no, no, I'm, uh, I'm like I, I mean, yeah, I wasn't even born when Nevermind came out. Ah, uh, okay, so. Nevermind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I talk as if I was, if I was, you know. I, I have, yeah, I have no no idea how old you are. <laughs> no, I would okay. love to have seen um, Nirvana. Yeah, I would love to. Um, I've not seen the Foo Fighters. Um, whenever they do play or or have played tickets just kind of sell out really fast oh i'm sure yeah uh because obviously it's always massive venues um I, I would really like to see those i would like to see foo fighters dan yeah, i definitely. assume you saw nirvana no i actually didn't I see didn't. nirvana and i was i was a late convert on nirvana me too I, me too <laughs> I, but i can say that nevermind was the first cd i ever bought oh wow um, yeah cool, so yeah I was late to the party on CDs too. I was kind of like, yeah, I'm a lifelong curmudgeon. You know what I mean? Like when a new technology comes out, I'm like, never, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sticking like, with these uh, cassettes. Yeah, exactly. I was <laughs> totally all about the cassettes and, you know, I was a big fan of Seattle <sighs> stuff. I, I was into Soundgarden and I Me was too. into, I was kind of late to the party on Pearl Jam too. I resisted that in the beginning, but you know, the, the music I really loved when I was that age was um kind of like the 120 minutes like you know college rock kind of scene so i was really into oh, like yeah. X xtc and yeah. squeeze and like rem early rem and you know i was i was trying to be cooler than everybody else that like nirvana but i but i wasn't cool <laughs> at all so i eventually kind of came around to them um yeah and then and, and i can remember almost like you know, a lot of uh, Americans, you know, older generation Americans talk about JFK. Like, I remember where I was when JFK was assassinated. And I totally remember where I was when I found out that Kurt Cobain committed suicide. I was totally. sitting in, in a college class and my friend told me that was sitting next to me. And, and I was, you know, I was devastated. Like, it was it was an awful day. But it was you know. crazy. Yeah, I, I was watching MTV at the time, like when people did that and Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction came on and was like talking about Kurt. And I'm like, what's this about? And then, yeah, right. It's crazy. Right. Yeah, no, I don't think I ever had a chance to see them. Um, you know, like I just wasn't into them at the time when they were, you know, playing. Yeah. You know, I kind of got into them after uh, after the height of it all, you know, but um. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that, you know, a musician could have that kind of impact, you know, on on people's lives, you know. But uh, yeah, it just makes me think, like, I, I'm not sure I can think of anybody since that has come close, you know. Maybe Kanye. <laughs> well, yeah. he's That's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's someone who could argue that, but... Yeah, um, not in the rock world, but... Yeah, but. I mean, I feel like the Beatles were such a game changer, Nirvana was such a game changer, and, like, I just don't know in terms of of that sort of, you know, earth-changing... Culture-changing, yeah, music-changing, culture changing, changing, everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just don't think we've had anything. And, I, you know, maybe maybe we won't for another 20 years, but... And that's yeah. okay. But Yeah, I hope, I hope we do. We might yeah. come from this kind of generation of kind of kids that were affected you know by covid and stuff maybe like the and then obviously the effect on the economy that's had afterwards maybe they're kind of going to grow up and start kind of rock bands um yeah i hope so i, I mean so. my kids are teenagers now and i i definitely feel like there's hope for the future um yeah i feel like they're so much more directed than i was at that age and you know the things they're paying attention to and i just feel like they're smarter so, I don't know. Who knows? 
Yeah, I feel yeah. like the uh, that band Idols is starting to make some major waves. I mean, obviously nowhere near where we're you know the status we're talking about right now, but but they are an important band. Um, I just saw them on my an Instagram feed this morning. Uh, my friends doing front of house for them. I mean, I'd never heard of them, so it's just so funny you mentioned them. Yeah, it's it's um, well worth investigating, and their new album, you know, sonically is unbelievable sounds amazing oh and they're nigel, from bristol nigel godrich you know produced and mixed and bob yeah. ludwig mastered and sounds phenomenal yeah i always wish um i don't know if you've heard of a band called waves but i kind of wish they had been like bigger because i felt like they had everything to be big and kind of um culturally important but mm. i think i have heard them yeah yeah songwriting and stuff is just on point there right um, like there's no kind of yeah they're very nirvana-y and he's quite kind of like quite a cool guy the guy that uh heads them up so well yeah we can only hope but i i'm i'm the same matt like you know when i talk to my kids about music it's very the usual suspects you know taylor swift phoebe oh Richards, yeah no my uh, my daughter lily is like She's getting into Soundgarden now and Mudhoney and, nice. and a little bit of Nirvana, Stone Temple Pilots, like all yeah. the stuff that like I was listening to and Black Sabbath, like it's just bizarre. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's so weird. I mean, it was, I guess it's a lot like when we were kids, you know, listening to the Beatles and Zeppelin and that, that sort of thing. Um, it's like it comes around in cycles, doesn't it? Radiohead was also a pretty important band, but I feel like they're more of like a music nerd important band like not so much culturally or I don't know, maybe it's different in England. I don't know. Like, yeah, they're, they're very, very big. Um, I like a lot of their songs, but yeah, they just kind of faded away. Like they're not kind of in the spotlight as much anymore. Right. But they definitely were important in the nineties, I think to, to people. Yeah. To young people. And dare I say Oasis. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wish I'd been like I wish I'd been like twenty and maybe like nineteen ninety uh, when all that you know all this grunge stuff and then obviously Oasis and then kind of post grunge because I think that would have been such a great time to be young and be going to shows and yeah to be in Manchester in the nineties would have been amazing. Yeah, I'm kind of the generation after that, so okay, yeah. right, maybe two. Right. I'm not sure. <laughs> Does, but, do people yeah. still uh, use the expression baggy? What is that? Um, well, I have a friend who's from <laughs> London, and she always says, you know, th this song sounds baggy. And I guess it's like a, a reference to like, uh, you know, Ned's Atomic Dustbin or um, the Stone Roses, that kind of stuff. Uh, no, I've never heard that term. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll have to start using it now. You should totally use it. Yeah, right back hey, to my, my client. Yeah. My, I, this mix is baggy. It's baggy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has been great. Thank you so much, Natalie, for, for giving us some time here today. No, it's been great. It's, uh, it's the first time I've ever, I don't know, been on a podcast. So, yeah, thank you for having me. How was I supposed to?